Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to Faith Matters three regular panelists and established scholars within the Amdiya Muslim community. Gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all back to Faith Matters. Assalamu alaikum. In terms of a brief introduction to my immediate right, of course, is Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan, who's the president of the Qazar Board, the Board of Jurisprudence here for the Amdiya Muslim community in the UK. Uh, Dr. Saab, welcome. To his right, of course, is the familiar figure and the most welcome figure always here on Faith Matters is, of course, Maulana Azhar Hanif Sahib, who's the Vice President, the Naib Amir of the Amdiya Muslim community in the United States. Welcome, Azhar Sahib. And to his right, of course, is Maulana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib, who's head of the French desk here in the UK, and he's also a senior missionary here in the United Kingdom. Gentlemen, welcome to Faith Matters. Our travels will first take us to Europe, into Germany, and our first question comes from Ahmed Sadiq Musa Nasir Sahib, Assalamu Alaikum. Um, he was talking about Islam to a friend of his who happens to have no faith, he's an atheist. And he was asked that Muslims often believe that the whole universe has been created for the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he wanted to ask if there was any reference where the Holy Prophet himself had actually said this. Azar Sahib, if I could start with you on that. The, the idea is linked perhaps to the purpose of creation, if we look at it from this first perspective. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says himself, he does everything with purpose. Nothing is created in this universe in vanity, without any rhyme or rhythm or reason. And so the idea then is what was the purpose of creation itself <coughs> in Islam? Allah says the whole purpose was for this issue of creating people to worship me. And this is the, the ultimate goal of Allah bringing the universe into being, without which this universe has no purpose. What is it to serve if it's not to serve that person for whom Allah had his plan? It's as if to say as, as a, a, a man, I get married, and mm. we're preparing now as a couple to have a child. Mm. We'll then have a plan, we're going to build an adjacent room or area in a room for that child. Mm. If the child doesn't come, that room has no purpose. It, even if someone comes and occupies it for a temporary time, my real goal was I want my child to enjoy this room. So the idea of this whole grand universe, why was it created? Allah is saying it was for insan, the human being, a true human being, who I had in mind will come and we use it properly, would fulfill the purpose of his creation, which is to worship me. And this is the goal of it. So now if we look at it from that perspective, who was the person who actually fulfilled it? The Quran says in one verse, in chapter 33, verse 73, 
It says, uh, verily we offer the trust. And the trust here means this grand purpose to fill it, to love God and know God, to the heavens and the earth and the mountains. But they refused to bear it and were afraid of it. This, was, this is a, you know, a grand scheme of things and it's a tremendous responsibility that one would take on and the rest of the creation really wasn't up to this task. Then it says, but man bore it. And the word here is al-insan. In the Quran, whenever al-insan is mentioned, it really means the perfect man. And we know that perfect man of all the prophets, holy people, was holy prophet Muhammad So in a sense, the Quran is saying the same thing in this verse. But man bore it. Indeed, he is capable of being unjust to and neglectful of himself. These two qualities are in a human being to neglect his own desires and wishes and passions and to put himself to troubles for the sake of this goal. And again, it was the Holy Prophet Muhammad so, who so, so. epitomized this. He neglected all of his personal desires and wishes and he went through all the greatest trials and tribulations to achieve this goal of life, to be a true al-insan, worshiper of God Almighty. And so the hadith seems to speak to this, that were it not for you, O Prophet, Muhammad I wouldn't have created this. But it doesn't just mean him, it means anyone who then follows him and seeks to be like Al-Insan, who wants to be a true worshiper, they go through the same process of sacrificing themselves and neglecting themselves and achieving this height of creation to which all creation is supposed to serve. And this is God's command to the angels. When a perfect man appears, then you have to make sajda to this man. You have to prostrate and support this man. So again, it's saying to all the universe was for what purpose? All the forces of nature which angels control was all there to support this human being who I was going to create to worship me. And all the rest of the human beings are nothing. They don't really have any scheme in mind when they're going about their life, but they're not sacrificing, they're not doing these things. They're actually not part of my, my view as being Al-Insan. And so the philosophy, whether or not discussion can come into this hadith is weak, the chain is right or not, mm -hmm. but the idea is embedded in the Quran mm -hmm. and in the purpose of creation. And so some debate whether or not this is an authentic hadith or not, but the idea is not debated. Most scholars in Islam say this is a con concept we agree that the purpose of God's creation was to create this perfect human being, and the perfect person we know was the Holy Prophet Muhammad Jazakumullah, very comprehensive. I, I think taking that to the next step, there was the, what was created for that Muslims believe, for the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, but also Jahangir Saab, one of the sort of titles associated, if I could put it that way, with the Holy Prophet of Islam was that he was a mercy for mankind as well. And that in itself, again, builds on exactly what Azasab had just said. You are reading my mind, because <laughs> I was just uh, going to say Some that. Some suggest that's exactly what we do on this you see, program. You know. you're very right to say that the Prophet Muhammad <laughs> was called the, a mercy for all the universes, not even this universe, but all the universes. And that also has a connotation of uh, referring back to, you know, human beings, because every human being is a universe in himself or herself as well. So he's been created for them and there for, for him. But also Allah says, وَرَحْمَتِي وَسِحَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ And my mercy encompasses all things. So this prophet encompasses everything in the universe. 
all the universe has been made for him and he's been made for the whole universe. So these things al align very nicely. And exactly as uh, as Osab had said, there is a lot of debate on whether this hadith, which is lawlaka ma khalaqtul aflaq, which is, uh, had it not been for you, I would not have created the heavens. Whether it's authentic or not, that's just a technical issue because of the, you know, the people who, who are mentioned in the chain of uh, narrators, there are some weaknesses there. And so we can't say for sure whether the Prophet Muhammad actually said that. But it, it's not uh, impossible that he had done so because the subject matter, as has been explained very eloquently by Azhar Sahib, is a correct one and it's totally Quranic. And this is exactly what we see. So in reality, therefore, this uh, idea which is embodied in this hadith, whether it comes from the Prophet directly or not, is a correct one. And this is why so many saints of Islam over the centuries have been quoting it in their books and have been expanding on it, you know, for the benefit of mankind. And my thanks also to Ahmed uh, Nasir Sahib from Germany for your question. Um, we're going to travel across the pond uh, to the United States for our next question from Nail Ahmed. Asalaamu Alaikum, Nail. Dr. Sahib, Nail's asking that, and it's something I think we, we all grew up with, you know, when, as we're growing up, is this whole issue of taqwa, of having what sometimes then is sort of translated as a fear of Allah in all you do. And I remember myself sitting back sometimes and having this kind of discussion and saying, you know, we believe in a God of mercy, a God of compassion and a God of love. Yet when certain things are happening, suddenly we're told to fear. And that was then subsequently explained to me, um, to my satisfaction, I would add, <laughs> as to the, con the concept of what that is. But I think it's a, it's a very valid question and a lot who, of people who look at Islam for the first time actually see this and are a bit taken back by the fact that here's the Holy Quran talking about a God of mercy and compassion, yet we're told to fear God. I hope I too can explain it to Niall in a, in, in a way that he'll understand. But you know, th this whole aspect of our life as has been explained from the previous question of our communion and connection with God Almighty, of worshiping him, is part of the reason that we have this, I, this um, uh, we don't want to fail in the purpose for which God has created us. And it is that fear of failure and attaining success is what man really should be aware of. And that actually comes out of love rather than anger or fear. So we know that a God is a merciful God and a, and a loving God. And that is what we know about our Creator, and it is that that we attach to. It is a very similar situation when we are growing up. We have our fathers and mothers whom we often fear, and it is the same sense in that sense that we have, that we do not want to fail them in whatever we are doing. And it is a fear of failure that we, are, we have in our minds. So that, in essence, is where it comes from, because we love our parents on this earth in a physical sense, and also it transcends to our teachers and coaches and sports coaches, if you think about that, because we love them and we want to uh, actually make the best of our abilities and they push us in that sense. It is fear of failure that we fear most. So in the same sense, it is not being uh, successful in the sense that God has created us, that we do not wish to fail. So it is that, in essence, it is that loving nature of the God that we have and that we want to attain to nearness to him and if we do not uh, obviously go down that path and we fail in that sense, 
That is the fear that we have. It is not any other sense of fear that we have in our senses. As I saw on this, and we we hear it in English as well. Sometimes, you know, you can, you know, I fear I may not live up to expectation. That's not perceived as a kind from a fear punishment perspective. It's but living up to expectation, respect plays into it. That someone has a great expectation of you, and you respect that individual a great deal, and you fear, in terms of the use of the word, not being able to fulfil that uh, aspiration they or ambition they have of you. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, the, the founder of the community, Hazrat Ahmad alayhi salam, he wrote a very extensive commentary of, of the first chapter of Quran. Mm -hmm. And he, he mentions another aspect to this question, which we should keep in mind. It has to do with our psychology, human psychology. What motivates us to do something or not do something? Mm -hmm. If I'm driving from my workplace back home, and I know there are the speed you know, cameras here and there, I'm going to automatically slow down when that area comes. And then once I pass them, I speed up along my way, completely disregarding the rule of law. But there are others who will take that journey from point A to point B, always mindful of the law, knowing this is good and this has its benefits for all, not just myself. So the first person has stopped and slowed down because of fear <coughs> of accountability mm -hmm. to law. And there's going to be judgment if you, if you make an error, you're going to be pulled in. And this is human psychology. That's why society has put all these things around as laws are there, that we are accountable for our actions. And there's some people who will only do the right thing, knowing this measure of some punitive or some accountability is in front of them. So the nature of these individuals require society to take measures to warn them and then even punish them if they commit these, these errors. The rest, they move along knowing it's good and they live you know, the wholesome lives and there's no problem. So what he explained was those two motive factors, hope and fear, are always there for our, our, our behavior and how we you know, move in life. And said in Quran, this is the first part Allah talks about. The first three attributes he mentions are about love. Mm -hmm. They give us hope. I, I gave you life. I'm gracious, I give you all you need, and if you do well, I'm gonna reward you and give you more and more and lead you along a progressive path. So this is a very hopeful message. <clears throat> and most people love to hear it, so God gives that message three times to us. But in the end, the last one, he says, I'm Maliki Yomadin. If you don't respond to my loving message of kindness, and you have that kind of nature, well, then know I also will judge you. So also then, as, he's, as Dr. Saab said, love me because I'm giving you all these things to love me for, but if you fail to appreciate my love and respond to my love, then also know you should fear that one day you stand before me. And this too is a day that you should dread because you're accountable now. And so keep yourself in check for that. In general, you know, we recite this during marriage ser sermons. You know, five times we say, ittuqullah, fear God. I'm not telling the couples are fearing each other, you know, if it's about love. I'm telling the couple to be also conscious of each other. Conscious that you don't want to make the mistakes, as Dr. Saab says, because therein lies the negative potential outcomes, and you should fear that. And therein could be the breakup of relationships, you should fear that. And this is what causes us to sometimes keep our hands and our tongues in check, without which, you know, we would just run free. So it's a beautiful psychology as well in this idea of fear, it's based on love and hope, but also based on potential accountability 
and the fear that has to be there to keep us in check, if that's our hardened nature. And I'm talking about a hardened nature now who can't respond to anything else. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah and my thanks also to uh, Nile for his question. Um, we're going to stay in North America for our next question, which comes from Sabur Khan, Canada. Um, interesting question. Uh, in a way, it builds on the question we've just been discussing about, about doing good things and good deeds, and etc. And Sabur, in writing uh, or putting forward the question, talks about the good and evil and makes the suggestion, which again, I think most can relate to, that we are rewarded in this world, you know, with, you know, good should be rewarded with good and evil has evil results and consequences. Um, then moving on to a concept again, which occurs within the Muslim faith, and we hear about it often about communities, good actions, you will earn sawab, the pleasure of God Almighty. And Sabur again then expands upon this by talking about that if we do certain things in a charitable nature because there's goodness in those actions. In a way, we take away from that action, and there's an interesting uh, term used here by Sabur, reductive disintegration. And the ultimate sort of question, I think, is framed around the Islamic picture of moral and ethical action, but also that the concept of reward is somehow less if you make a big song and dance, if, for want of a better term about what you're doing. So look at me, I've made these great charitable donations, or I'm doing... Exactly, you know, great publicity yeah. behind the whole thing. And I suppose that's, that's the essence. I mean, John Gisab, I mean, what Sabur is getting at, we, you know, taking good actions are rewarded by good, evil actions have evil consequences. But within, the, from an Islamic perspective, if you do good, or if you give towards charity, the question is, you know, what is the consequence of then talking about it to an extent whereby others perhaps think the reaps of arrogance? <clears throat> well, this actually follows on from yeah, the, the question. question which we just heard mm. the answer to. And I think Azhar Sahib has touched upon the, you know, the aspect of uh, this question which, which needs to be addressed here, which is that there are people at different levels. And at every level you have a certain motivation to, you know, do the, the right thing, mm -hmm. to be moral, right. yes. And some people are motivated by the, the idea that there's going to be hell if they don't behave. Mm -hmm. So they're not even seeking rewards, they're just seeking not to be in hell. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the lowest level you can imagine, like, you know, just trying to get yourself out of trouble. Mm -hmm. To keep yourself out of trouble, you don't <laughs> do certain things. Mm -hmm. Then there are some people at a, a slightly higher level, which, which who, um, you know, are looking to to the, 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 the benefits in the next life. Mm -hmm. And so they, they of course fear hell, but they also are looking forward to receiving things if they do stuff for God, to put it very, you know, very simply. And that's their motivation. So they want to go to paradise and they want to have this and they want to have that. And that's what motivates them. But then you come to the higher stage and this is what I think Sabur is uh, relating to. And this is the actual reality of the thing, how a believer has to be. Mm. Allah doesn't want believers to mm. be doing good things just so that they get out of jail, free, free kind of thing, you know, or get out of hell. Mm. He doesn't want them to, to do good things just because they're going to be rewarded with paradise. Mm. He wants them to do things for another reason. And this is where we can go and get some guidance from a very great, great saintly woman of Islam, mm. Rabi'a al-Adawi al-Basriya. So she was a saintly lady in Basra, mm. 
And she made that very, very famous uh, you know, statement. It's a prayer, actually, and it's well known in the, in the English-speaking world now because it's been, you know, especially on the internet, and many people have come across it, where she says, Oh Allah, if I now she's speaking of the lower state, you know, where people begin um, on their spiritual journey. So she says, if I worship you for fear of hell, burn me in hell. So she's saying that I'm not like those people. So if you feel that I'm doing it just so that I get out of hell, then I say, put me in it. I don't deserve it. Yeah. And then she says, uh, and if I worship you in hope of paradise, exclude me from paradise. So if, I'm, if you think that I'm of the second category of people who are doing it just for a gain, you know, at the end of the day, then I don't deserve anything. So don't let me go in paradise, into paradise. But if I worship you for your own sake, grudge me not your everlasting beauty. And this is the higher level of the believer, the highest level actually, where you do good only because you want God's countenance. You, want, you've, uh, you have understood what the face of God is. You've understood the attributes of God and you've fallen in love with them. And you don't want to see anything else. This, is the, this has taken over your entire being. And now everything you do is because of that. It's in line with the beauty that you see in that beautiful face of God, the countenance of God. This is what people do good for when they're at the higher levels. And this is what Islam is trying to take people towards, from the lower stage of humanity, in, in, in morality of course, towards the higher stages. And this is uh, what she was alluding to here. So it's a very interesting question and a very rightly put one. And this concept, uh, Dr. Saab, on this, within society, we often talk about reward. I mean, it, even here in the UK, there's a lot which is done for, we hear about the charitable nature of people. And quite often people do sort of give to charity or do good deeds, if you like, in a more discreet way, um, because they don't want undue attention. And again, coming back to the point Jang Yusuf said, they do it with the intent to help someone or help a particular cause rather than to get any kind of accolade for saying, look how wonderfully well we've done in giving money to what we would all probably regard as a very worthwhile cause. Absolutely, yeah, there are many selfless causes yeah. and humanitarian causes that mankind does contribute to. And many a time those are done without the left hand knowing what the right hand has given. And that is one aspect of, um, of uh, gaining greater reward from God Almighty, but not with that essence in mind. However, on the other, other hand, as far as financial sacrifices are concerned, the Holy Quran does speak of the other scenario as well, where there is a public announcement made, not as such, but the public are aware that a person has taken part in a charitable cause, just as a, uh, so that it becomes an encouragement for other people as well. So there is always a balance in that sense as well. But humanitarian uh, uh, causes, charities, in done in a selfless way without people knowing about it is something that obviously in the community it is done very much so. And that is the way that charitable causes are, are, are taken forward. It but there are both. It reminds me of something, if I could just say mm. this, because there's a very interesting incident which I, I, I saw uh, when, I, when I was watching a video recording of a Jalsa in Kardian where there was a, a Hindu... It's DVD now in this age. <laughs> or was yes, it a video? Well, I mean, a video recording. No, yeah, well, yes. no, 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 there we are. Um, By all means, carry yes, on. Yeah. So it was a, a Hindu <laughs> priest who came and said that we needed a well in our village. 
and I approached the local politician who's a Hindu, and he said, well, if you can give me an adv advance of so many thousands, and then if you can have a ceremony when I come to do the opening and you put a plaque on it, you know, with my name on it and this and that, then I can do it. So he said, I told him, if I had all these thousands, why would I come to see you in the first place? He said, but somehow the Jamaat, he called him the Jamaat, meaning the Jamaat Ahmadiyya, in Qadian, found out. And so uh, he said that we, we got talking and I said, could you help me? And they said, well, we, ha we have a Khalifa, we have to ask him and we'll see. So uh, Huzur approved. And he said, and then we got our well. So I told them, now let's have a ceremony, you know, an opening ceremony, and we're going to put a lovely plaque there with your name on and this and that. And they said, no, we don't want that. We did it for God. Mm -hmm. So he said, I was looking for Ram, meaning God, you know, in the Hindus, and I found Ram in the Muslims, mm. you know? So, yes, please carry oh, on. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, this no, is, no, but that's just to illustrate, know how much we don't want to get the thanks of people. And on that as well, as I said, I mean, putting it into the context of the world, I mean, quite often, if you take, say, our country here, the United Kingdom, you take the United States, too often I would suggest that the focus has always been on what are they doing and the challenges which or the criticisms are levied. But if you sort of scratch the surface, you actually see when it comes to philanthropy, when it comes to helping other nations, developing nations, actually it's these very nations who are at the forefront in terms of infrastructure development, educational development. And that's a testament to, if you like, the charitable godliness in the people of those nations as well. It's also a testament to the teachings which many were followed of Jesus Christ, that mm -hmm. <coughs> peace be upon him. And it was the same principle he was teaching, that it's the pure service of humanity is a reflection of your love of God. So it's about the issue here is love, as, as Jahangir initially explained. If we have true love for the being of God, that's enough reward for us. And the sign of that will be, we'll do all these things and not seek recognition or reward. And this verse is clearly mentioned in the Quran, I seek no recognition or reward because my reward is God. When we fast, what do we say? No one knows I'm fasting, but I say I'm doing it because my reward is God. And the one incident I recall is the fall of Mecca. This showed what he mentioned, that there are, there are these two levels of believers. The initial believer who was kind of still dragging his feet on the earth and wanting the earthly rewards, which are, which are fine. But there's another higher level of believer who aspires for this loving relation with God and his prophet. So after the fall of Mecca, when the you know, the things were distributed that had come into the hands of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu He was giving all the wealth to the newcomers. And his companions were looking at, you know, we've been fighting along your side and struggling with you all this. Where's our share of this wealth now? What answer he gave them? That is not the company of the Rasul, the messenger, enough for you. In other words, you, you're past this stage now. Why are you still asking for these baubles, like a small child asking for sweeties and, and, and candies, you know? You're, you now have been acquired the greatest gift, which is the love of God and his messenger. Isn't it enough? And they became quiet, for they re realized this is the ultimate reward we should all be aspiring for. And it speaks to what you say in society. I've seen the trend now, unfortunately. Too much focus is on these external rewards. Small children in our school system now, they, they graduated from kindergarten and getting certificates of, of graduation. <laughs> you know? And so it's feeding, unfortunately, into this idea of everything has to be an immediate reinforcement and reward. Instead of developing the sense, as you say, that this group does have from their scriptures as well, from their prophets, and from, we say, Islamic traditions, to see and aspire for the altruistic measures of success. 
purely for the sake of doing the good, and this good should be giving you the pleasure that you would get from material resources. So it's, 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 a, it's a work in progress. It's an evolution, not a disintegration that Islam talks about. And through this moral and spiritual evolution, you reach the point he's talking about, which is an ideal. And as we say, as we're going along in the journey, we're not all there yet. Yeah, yeah I think ever-evolving. It'd be fair to say as well that sometimes the rewards or, you know, if other people talk about the goodness of the actions, that in itself is a blessing from God Almighty in recognizing uh, the contributions of others. Gentlemen, as ever, my thanks also to Sabul for the question. Um, we're, we seem to be going, we've just been talking about good things. We're now going to talk about bad things. And the next question focuses on punishments. And it comes from uh, Nasser Chaudhry from Canada. Assalamu alaikum, Nasser. So I have thank you for your question. It relates about punishments within Islamic society. Um, and this question or a proposition is a simple one, but I'm sure the answer is much more detailed. But is that as punishments, and we have so-called Islamic societies or countries established across the world, is it dependent on having a just society? Dr. Saab, if I start with you, on this and it is something that's raised you know you talk about Islamic and Sharia comes under a lot of scrutiny um, across the world and also in other countries which aren't Muslim majority countries but equally it's the basis of justice vis-a-vis -vis Islam to actually ensure that whatever's being practiced is just absolutely I mean one thing we must always remember that Islam is a religion of peace and it creates a society in which there is not only peace but equal opportunities and justice for all of its inhabitants, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim. So that is the society that um, Islam tends to create, a true Islamic society, uh, according to the early history of Islam. And what we find is that in order to maintain a peaceful coexistence, then certain limits and curbs have to be put in place so that the peaceful existence of society is not disrupted. But when we talk about punishments in Islam, in my mind, the, the, what should always be highlighted is the forgiveness attitude of, that Islam has. <coughs> that Islam has a very balanced view that forgiveness, if a crime has been committed, forgiveness should always be the uppermost consideration if the reformation of that individual can pl take place through forgiveness. Mm -hmm. It is a balanced view. It is, it is neither one way nor the extreme the other way but forgiveness should always always be considered. But before any, any Sharia punishments can be enacted, then one has to see whether the society has got to such a stage that true Islam and peaceful coexistence opportunities have been present there for the inhabitants, for them to be able to live in that peaceful coexistence. If a society is not practicing Islam in its purest form, and has the opportunities for its inhabitants to live in that peaceful coexistence, then one cannot enforce punishments which may seem out of, out of sync and out of order. So that has to be viewed from that very angle. And at, at this, this stage in life, we do not find that there is any Islamic country where this uh, scenario exists so that those punishments can be enacted. So one has to, in each case, of it, whether there has been a, a crime committed, one must consider whether the person, the criminal committing that crime, was living and had the opportunities to actually practice Islam and had been given the opportunities for him not to have committed that crime. 
So that has to be always borne in mind for whatever society is judging on that person. So that is an, that is an important undertone that has to be borne in mind and, and therefore this, the, this, this, this society has to be considered from that angle as such. Dr. Saab. Azhar Saab, I mean, this is, it not just doesn't apply to Islam. You must create the right conditions to actually apply the right process to ensure that there's justice. And um, going back in history, was there ever a time, and particularly during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and indeed subsequent, uh, the Khulafa that followed him, that that kind of society had been created and that kind of justice was being dispensed? And if so, what happened? I mean, where did it all go wrong? Well, I think that there was definitely a time, as clearly is indicated in the statements of the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu that the Islamic order of moral order would reign supreme in the hearts and minds of people, and it would, it would carry over into effect into society, the kind of society they were created, as Dr. Sassab mentioned. It was a just society, it was a, a compassionate society to the extent that the, the Khulafa, the, the leaders of the Ummah at that time, such as Hazrat Omar's story is well known in history, that he would go around every single night just observing the condition of the people. And where he saw that his effort was, being, was unjust, he failed to provide for somebody. And there's a the story of an, an old woman with, some, a woman with some children who were at nighttime, the woman was you know, kind of consoling the children to, to be still, be still, the food is about to be ready, and she's boiling some food on, on a stove, but the pot was completely empty except for water. And when he inquired, and what are you doing? Why, why are the children crying? She said, I, I do this every single night. I, I let them cry themselves to sleep, basically, and keep giving them this hope that the food is about to be ready, about to be ready. So the story ends by him realizing that this poor woman had no means of subsistence. And when he inquired, why did you ask the Khalifa? And she said, no, it was the duty of the Khalifa to come and find out the condition of his subjects. And then she said something very striking. I, she said, I wish the rule of this Khalifa would be finished. Let the rule, oh God, let the, this Khalifa's rule be finished because he's failed his subjects and led me to have to be in this condition where my poor children are starving. His reaction was the one that you see in Islamic orders back then. Hmm. He didn't just say, oh, oh poo-poo to you, this is nonsense, you know, you should have done, you should have come and all that. He went back to the state treasury, grabbed the goods for her meal, put them on his back and walked back to that woman. And the person who was attended walking along his side said, let me carry it. It was a heavy bag and the, and the flower inside was falling on his beard. It was a, a very strange sight. He said, let me help you along. He said, no, no. No one can carry my burden, not in this life, not in the next life. And it's this kind of spirit of a Islamic governance of that era that you don't see now. Where do you see that? In so-called Muslim lands, and even in many cases, the non-Muslim land. In the US now, this issue of punishment has come before us many, many times. As we all know that there was capital punishment on the books in many states, yet they removed capital punishment, not because it's only the outcry of people that it's, it's against a moral sense, but they said because the legal system was corrupt, unjust. The poor, certain ethnic groups were being singled out for this punishment, and the rich, the wealthy of a certain ethnic class were being gone free. 
and all the evidence was, was being, you know, fabricated to prove the case in one, and in other cases, the evidence was being thrown out to get the other one in, innocent. So they stopped capital punishment and put a moratorium on it, that no capital punishment until we could figure this out. And this is an idea that also carried recently, and it's going on right now, the current situation there, with the incarceration of people because of drugs. It was based on ethnicity, that certain areas, certain communities were targeted to grab them and make them accountable for drug use and they were being jailed. And now they realize that this was a wrong policy, so they've stopped the over-incarceration of people and the harsh penalties of people because of this. And so the principle, I think, is the same, that when society is not just in enforcing law or understanding law or seeing the criminal in the same light, it loses its right in Islam and in other societies to enforce those laws and exact those punishments. So this principle was also uh, in, in Islam, there was a case, I believe one, uh, the servants who, who were very poor and were forced to steal from you know, the, the grains to have their meals. The Caliph Omar said, because they were forced to steal because of our negligence, we don't have the right to cut their hands off according to the law of Sharia. But do you, again, do we see this nowadays? Mm. You know, in, in Islamic societies? Well, that's part of the problem, isn't it? That they don't create the conditions to prevent people to fall into a life that most would think is of whatever, but a life of criminality, if I could generalize it. Um, yet what the underlying causes sometimes are, the societal reasons. I mean, the petrodollars, not to single out any particular nation, but the petrodollars that have been generated over the last decades are enough to remove so much hunger <clears throat> and housing crisis in the Muslim world. And if not that, to solve the refugee crisis going on right now in the Muslim world. But do those nations take that money and give it to these causes to alleviate these people? We see it's, it's a very, very slow and very uh, you know, meager type of outreach. So it creates the circumstances that lead to crime and other uh, you know, miserable conditions for people. A question which I'm sure we could carry on discussing, but for now, gentlemen, Jazakallah, my thanks also to Nasser Saab for his question. In a way, Younger Saab, we're going to sort of continue with the next question on a similar kind of theme, which comes from Sir. Sabaha Avidsa from Germany, which is talking again about um, people and punishments, etc. But he's putting it in more into the co context of where people say that their punishment in the afterlife, so for what they've done in this life, is hell, and that people will be subjected to hell fire and so on and so forth. His first question is, you know, what, what does that actually constitute? Is it physical? Is it emotional? Um, because quite often it's talked about in you know, literal terms at times, in terms of depictions which are made of it. Um, yet, in other times, there's a maybe it's a metaphoric association, and then we also hear that the way in which the spirit will leave the physical body here and manifest itself in whatever way will be markedly different as well. You see, the <clears throat> the limitations we face here are linguistic. The ideas have to be conveyed in human language, and but by, by its very you know, definition, that's going to be something which is going to be related to our experiences in this world as we do not have any experience of the next world. So, to, in, an, in a nutshell, we do not know exactly how 
these uh, sufferings or these torments are going to play out in the next world because we can't conceive of the life in the next world. But however, God has explained these things to us in terms that we can understand and we have to try and transpose that onto what's going to come. With the proviso, of course, that whatever we're saying now has to do with this world and you have to realize that it's going to be slightly different. It's a bit like trying to explain to a five-year-old who's just started school what receiving a PhD is going to be like. So you can only explain it to him in terms that he can understand or she can understand. You can't expect you know, to, to be able to explain the whole thing as it is. So, um, but what I would like to say is that um, contrary to what uh, many atheists would have us uh, you know, believe, um, this is not a case of this vindictive God sitting there, you know, waiting to mete out punishments, torments, tortures to his creation who didn't do things the way he wanted them to be. Actually, they should reflect on their own lives and they know that if they mistreat their bodies, they will suffer. If, for example, somebody just suddenly decides that I'm not going to eat anymore, so they could decide that there are people who do these things. What's going to happen is that they're, they're going to start suffering at, at a certain point. And this is very easily understandable. So if they starve their souls, it will be something very similar which is going to happen. And if they do harm to their souls, like for example when they hurt other people, this affects their souls as well. It, it harms their own souls. So basically, as the Prophet the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has said, that everybody makes their own paradise and their own hell in this very life. Mm. Whatever you make of yourself, that's what you're going to find in the next life. And as it said in the Bible, whoever sows the wind will reap the whirlwind. Mm -hmm. So this is how it happens. You ha it all starts here. So all we know is that it's going to be a consequence of what we've been doing. How it's going to be, we do not know, but God has warned us and said that it will be painful, just as neglecting yourselves here is painful, there too it will be painful. Although he said, he added that it will be even more excruciating, more painful in the next life because you will be so much more aware. As we know, pain is all about awareness. Some people could, can bear more pain than another, although the action being done to both are the same, is the same, but one has more perception of it, so he suffers more. So that's the, the only thing we know about the next life, and that, that's about it, really. Zakhmalan, I think, you know, one thing we can always learn from this life is, you know, if you do good, you get back to an earlier question, sort of positive things. If you do bad, then you can expect bad. But, um, gentlemen, in this case, Jahangir Saab, thank you for that, and my thanks also to um, uh, our questioner for uh, Sabahat Abid Sahib. Um, our next question comes from Abdul Basit. Um, Basit Sahib, you haven't told us where you're from, but um, I hope in, as I pose the question, you'll realize it's you. Um, an interesting question relating to Islamic history, but I, I think it, can, it goes wider than that as well. He talks about particular dark periods, uh, Dr. Zayed Sahib, about Muslim, you know, when Islam ruled, Islam sort of spread across the world and leaders conquered various, what were then defined as non-Muslim lands, and converted churches and synagogues to, uh, it says temples, but I assume he means mosques here, and they deprived Christians and Jews of their rights. First of all, he, from an historic context, did that happen? 
The other thing which sort of sometimes when these questions are framed, again, you look at it in the context. These were rulers whose faith may have been Muslim, but I think yeah. it's the description which is sometimes used that Muslim rulers implying they were not, you know, they were ruling off the ba basis of being Muslim, but that's not always the case. Um, indeed, today's world is a living, working example that there are people who are rulers who may Lord also, <laughs> indeed. Yes. I mean, we're, we're fortunate, aren't we, that the Holy Prophet وسلم, has left us a history of Islam for 1500 years, and that he prophesied 1400 years ago. He described um, about his prophethood, and he said that the prophethood will remain amongst you as long as Allah wills, and then he will take that away. It will then be followed by truly guided uh, caliphs who would also be uh, on the right path. And then a time would come, a long period would follow that, in which tyrannical rulers would be the leaders of, uh, in the Islamic world. But then he gave glad tidings that then Khilafat or leadership would then return to the Muslims on the precepts of, of prophethood. So he gave this whole history of uh, Islam. And when we look back and we study the historical records, we find exactly that that is exactly uh, what happened according to the prophecy that the Prophet had made. That following him, we had the rightly guided caliphs. And in the life of the caliphs, and history shows us that they protected not only the Muslims, but also the non-Muslims as, as Islam spread around them. We have beautiful recollections in Spain and wherever that these were very just rulers. The Muslims at that time, they were under the guidance of the Caliph from Medina and from uh, Kufa later on. Mm. But they always were just and they were always giving the freedom and the rights of other faiths to practice uh, freely. And uh, their places of worship were always protected and they had the full rights at that time. So that was the history of Islam up to the four, uh, four rightly guided caliphs. Beyond that, as we know, according to the prophecy of the prophet, there were tyrannical rulers. And although their religion per se might have been Islam, but they were not following the true practice of Islam or the true practice that had preceded them. And in that period, we find, of course, that there, there, there were events around the, uh, around the Islamic uh, uh, domain that we find that, yes, churches may have been torn down or temples were transformed and people of other religions were not given their true rights to practice and, and preach and, and so on. So that is the history of Islam, but we, we know that that was according to the prophet who had prophesied that this would happen. Um, and, and then, of course, we know the transformation that, prof that took place, and we are now seeing the true, true concept of Islam once again there, in, in there the was world. A, uh, I don't know if you watched it, but there was a, a documentary very recently on British television on the history of the Jews in different lands. And they did say that in certain areas, Jews did not receive all their rights. However, they did flourish in Islamic societies. But one thing, and it's very telling, that they didn't mention was that any of their synagogues were ever lost. This is one striking feature which, uh, you know, really, you know, says it, says it all, really. And we have to remind people that wherever Muslims ruled, there might have been periods where there were certain, you know, people who did not uh, follow the teachings of Islam properly or who were extremists in their views. However, till this day, for example, in, in Greece, where Muslims have ruled, there are churches which are pre-Islamic, 
which are still standing today. They weren't pulled down. In India, there are so many temples that are pre-Islamic and they're still there. And this continues into Egypt and wherever the Muslims have been ruling, even in recent history, we saw when this terrible incident happened with the Bamiyan statues in, in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. one thing which was being also talked about was how come they've, they've remained so long? And it only took, you know, it had to take the, the, no less than the Taliban to get to, to destroy them. So all the previous rulers had left them and they were also Muslim ruled lands. So, yes, yeah, so as you can see, the idea in Islam is not to go there and pull down everything which isn't Islamic. A lot is said also in India by ultra nationalists these days that, you know, the previous kings, the Muslim kings, they, they tore down temples. But what many Hindu um, historians also like to point out, who are more fair and balanced in their views, is that when Muslim kings pulled down temples, they also pulled down mosques. And they were doing that because of the rebellions which were being hatched in those places of worship. And whether they were mosques or temples made no difference, then they would pull them down. But they also built temples. And this is another thing which is often glossed over. Muslim kings built Hindu temples for their Hindu subjects. Now, so there was a lot of give and take, and people weren't always embodiments of Islam, Islamic teachings as they should be, but by and large, Islam has a very good track record of how it treated the places of worship of its minority um, you know, subjects, or even majority subjects, as in the case of India. Um, and this was all due, as, you, as uh, Dr. Sabad rightly said, to the, t the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad which prevent Muslims from ever you know, going down that line of destroying places of worship of others. Indeed, as I said, on that as well, I mean, there's a specific instruction, isn't it? Even when you conquer lands, do not destroy the cloisters, do not destroy the judges, uh, churches and synagogues. And the fact that they're named for the purpose in which they were being used, again, would suggest to anyone sensible that the whole reason of referring to them in those names and with those specific names is that they should be sustained and maintained for the very worship of those communities. Yes, even, even more so than this, mm -hmm. more so. The Holy Quran has brought this issue to the forelight when it spoke about, O Messenger of God, you now fight. Mm. Why fight? What was the first command to him where he had to go forth and use force to, to counter force? It was to protect the universal right of all to profess and practice religion. And the Quran says, because if you don't do this, they'll mm. begin pulling down the churches and the temples and the cloisters and the mosques. So it was enshrined in the word of God. This is your duty to protect these places, not to destroy these places. Mm. If Muslims, as Jahangir said, from time to forget this word of God, and as you mentioned, the covenant of the Holy Prophet Muhammad yes. where he went beyond this and put it into a, a more concrete form of a yes. document. And then said at the end, this is now for all time. This is not just for these people. He said, this is for all time. You must follow these rules that protect the monks, pr protect the life of these people, protect the places of these people, protect their coming and going. Everything was now as sacred as your own lives, your own places, your own you know, professions. And uh, in general, by Allah's grace, has been pointed out beautifully, and I think this is such an important point, that people show you the one bloody spot on the cloth and forget the majority of that cloth is a beautiful white clean sheet. 
And so there were areas, as Dr. Saab said, where a few things happened, but we forget the overall, our, our overarching message of Quran, the message of the Holy Prophet Muhammad and the, the execution of this in the life and history of the, of, the, of, the, of the Ummah, the Muslim community was to follow this order and they've done it. Even today, as you mentioned in the beginning, even today, you may have a voice here and there in the Muslim world, but the majority of Muslims, they are not pulling down places of worship. They're not driving out people of other faiths. They're living side by side in a more or less harmonious way. But there are tensions, and this is what leads to these questions, and we should try well, to- they are, I'm just picking up on that point. Unfortunately, you talked about the, you know, my man, and you know, we've had examples, and I'm just thinking aloud here, historically, um, you know, recently I read, for example, in Peshawar, a beautiful Hindu temple. It's not being raised to build a mosque. It's actually been raised, I believe, to build a shopping center. Now, these are historical buildings, which I think it, there's an onus on all countries to protect, sustain, maintain, and again, celebrate the fact that these cultures. But I think you made a very powerful point early that over the history of Islam, unfortunately, the present day examples we see in Afghanistan and currently tragically in Iraq and Syria of these Muslims who pertain to act in the name of Islam, yeah. who are driving out communities and in doing so also destroying historical buildings and uh, places of worship. Yes, I think they do need to protect the heritage, but there's one point which I forgot to mention, and I think this is very important to say, because sometimes people could turn around and point a finger at us as well, because we do have certain churches that we've transformed into mosques in our community, and we also have at least one synagogue, which I know of, in America, which was turned into a prayer center as well. Mm. Now they say, well, how does this go around? How does this happen then, according yeah, to your teaching? They're but, very happy about that. Though. I, <laughs> yes. I was there well, and we exactly. had a meeting and they were very happy that this has now become a house of... This is exactly <laughs> the point. You see, when the people to whom these buildings belong in the first place are very happy to, to, let, to hand them over to you for whatever reason. For example, in the case of America, they were, the, the, the flock had scattered. There were not enough people to, you know, to use the building properly. They couldn't maintain it, so it was up for sale. And it somehow came into the hands of the Ahmadi Muslims. So this, nobody should you know, point a finger and say that we went and took over the place. This is not at all the case. And it's very similar here in, in Great Britain where we have a, a church or two that have been made into, turned into mosques. But again, the people themselves couldn't look after their churches. And rather than have them pulled down or turned into you know, like pubs or whatever, they were, they were much happier to see them remain as houses of God. So this is a totally different issue, and it's not at all related to the fact that you know, some people take the religious rights of others and take over their, their places of worship. This is something totally different, of course. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.